Well, we've been working our way through Paul's letter to the Philippian church, uh, as we've stated, but uh, perhaps uh, just as a reminder, uh, Paul has written this letter from prison, which is, as we've mentioned quite a few times, quite striking given the, the fact that it has a very joyful tone and that Paul, all throughout, speaks of how joyful he is. And so, uh, but let us remember that this letter is being written from prison and from being guarded 24-7, literally chained uh, round the clock to a praetorian guard. He's writing this letter to a church in a very important city. Philippi was a Roman colony, uh, which meant that its citizens were were Romans and, uh, and afforded many luxuries because of that. And the city of Philippi was important, it was luxurious, it, it had a lot of things going for it, but Paul had planted this church there roughly 10 years before he was imprisoned. And uh, as we went through the first part of the letter, we saw that uh, he spent time discussing his and their identity, he, he talked about how grateful he was for them, he He described different ways that he prayed for them. And then beginning last week, uh, Jeff led us through 1 Corinthians, uh, I mean, Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. And so we're going to carry on in that section that he's in now where he is beginning to exhort them and to command them to do certain things. And so our passage today It begins chapter 2. Our passage is Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Now, if you have your Bibles with you, as always, I'd encourage you to to keep them open as as we go through the sermon, because I'll be pointing at different verses and words. And if you don't have a Bible with you, but would like to follow along as I read and as we go through the sermon, if you look in the seat in front of you, you'll find a Bible there, and you'll find our passage there on page 980. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. We see here in this first verse, that first word there, so. That word is important. Because it can be translated so, as it is uh, here in our translation, but you can also translate that word, therefore. And if you've been in church long enough, uh, you've probably heard the phrase, if you see a therefore, you need to see what it's there for. Uh, You see uh, that word so, or therefore, it, it means that Paul is following up on something that he's already said. He's said something, and now he's following up with something else. So if we go back a little bit, 
if you just look back in Philippians chapter 1, and you go back to the section that Jeff preached on last week, you'll see in verse 27, that begins with the word only. And as Jeff mentioned, and, and even titled his sermon based on this, what that word is, is extremely important as well. Because for the first time in the letter, Paul is beginning to exhort these Philippians. He's beginning to give them commands. He's beginning to urge them to do something. And when you see that word only in verse 27, you can really translate that as, Jeff, what was the title of your sermon, Just This or Only This? Uh, so you can translate this, only this or, or just this one thing, something. But what Paul is saying here is, uh, remember, he's hoping that he can get out of prison. He says, and that was in the one section I preached on, he's saying, I'm really wrestling with this because I'm about to go before Caesar and be judged. And there's a possibility that I might be condemned and I might be executed. And in one sense, I'd prefer that, Paul actually says. Remember, to live as Christ, to die as gain. And so if I'm executed, that means that I'll go immediately and be with the Lord in heaven. But he said, but on the other hand, to remain, to actually be exonerated and set free from prison would be better for you because my plan is to come visit you and if I visit you, then I can encourage you and teach you and help you to grow. But what he says after that is, look, I, my plan is to come to see you again, but here's the deal. Whether I come and see you or not, I don't know what's going to happen to me, but this is the thing, only this. And you see that in, in, in verse 27, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then he goes on a little bit, and as Jeff preached last week, if you kind of sum that all up, verses 27 through 30, he's talking about unity. Now, the reason that I even go back to that section is because when he enters now chapter 2 with a so, he's following up on that. Specifically, he's going back to let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That kind of starts everything that he's going to say here. And so if you want to kind of categorize what he's talking about here, he's talking about in both in last week's sermon as Jeff preached and in this week's, he's really zeroing in on unity, unity in the church. But whereas with last week's passage, if you just read through 27 through 30, the bulk of the weight there is how to be unified against outside forces. Paul is saying, look, I want you to stand firm, uh, stand side by side against your opponents, these opponents that are headed for destruction. They're not in the church. Uh, you're going to be saved, but they're going to be destroyed. And, and, and all of these, you see the language there. So verses 27 through 30, you could say, he's saying, look, I want you to be united against outside foes, against outside pressures. And now as he moves into this second section here in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, he's essentially saying, and I also want you to live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that you're unified also against internal division and disunity inside the church. 
Living a life worthy of the gospel means, therefore, you're going to be standing firm and united as a church against outside forces and opponents, and you'll be standing firm and united as a church against inside forces and opponents. And it is to that second that we now turn in chapter 2. Now, as I thought about this this week, I thought, well, what, what's actually more difficult for the church? As you think about a local church or even the, the church, uh, you know, um, invisible, what is a more difficult foe or, or what presents more problems for the church? And I don't really know the answer to that. I mean, throughout church history, the church, as we sang last week, the church's one foundation, it talks about the outside and inside foes against both foe or traitor the church ever shall prevail it talks about how there are people outside that want to destroy the church and inside we have false teachers and disunity so so you can see that the church has battled both for since its inception but one thing that that i did kind of think about is you can have siblings let's say you have three or four brothers in the home and they can fight with each other all week for various reasons. There can be massive disunity in the home between those brothers. But if a bully in the neighborhood from outside the home attacks one of those siblings, chances are the other three will unite immediately against the outside foe. And so in some ways, it can be harder to create internal unity when, when an outside foe can kind of generate that unity immediately. And so now Paul is talking about something that in some ways might be even more difficult. And so he begins here with a therefore. And what we see in verses 1 through 4 is to kind of simplify it, I think, as I studied it this week, he gives the church, he gives them, and he gives us today a kind of two-step process to create unity against internal division. The first part of this two-step process is in verse 1. And, and I'll, I'll just sum that up by saying he wants the church to take inventory. In verse 1, he wants the church to take inventory. So what does he say here in verse 1? So, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, he's about to tell us the second part, but let's pause here. How does a local church, like the one in Philippi, like Meadowcroft, develop internal unity? The first step, Paul's saying, is take inventory of the evidence of God's grace in the church. Pause and observe what God has done. He lists four things that he names that he wants them to stop and inventory. Encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation in the Spirit, affection and sympathy. Now notice, he's not asking for much. He's not saying, are you glorified yet? Are you a perfect church? He's saying, do you have any of this? Do you have some 
as you look around, is there any of these things going on? Now, he begins with this encouragement in Christ. <clears throat> Our translation has it in encouragement in Christ. But that word uh, can also be translated, actually, if, if any of you are, happen to be using a King James Version this morning, you'll, you'll find it in there, consolation or comfort. And actually, I think that's what, what Paul's after here. It could be both, could be either one, uh, but I think he's, Paul, remember, is the preeminent Old Testament scholar. And when you look back at the Old Testament, what you find is that over and over again, God's people are pointed back to the comfort or the consolation that comes from God. That in the midst of trial, in the, in the midst of a world of, of hardship, in the midst of trying circumstances, what we find, for instance, in Psalm 94, the psalmist says, when I thought my foot slips, it was your steadfast love, O Lord, that held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, it is your comfort or your consolation that cheers my soul. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1, comfort comfort my people says the lord the, the, every time you you look in the old testament specifically the greek translation of the old testament called the septuagint when it speaks of the comfort that comes from god it uses the exact same word that paul is using here for the consolation of christ so may, maybe paul is saying look is there any evidence as you look around the church is there any evidence that your church, that the members of this church, find their ultimate source of comfort in the midst of trials and in the midst of suffering from Christ? And I thought about that this week. I think there is. I think there's plenty of that. When, when, I, when I talk to you, when I, when I pray with you, when I hear from you about trials you're going through, uh, we don't, um, as a as, we, as we're talking through this, we, we don't turn our gaze to Oprah to find comfort or to some politician to find comfort. We go to the cross of Christ for our ultimate source of comfort. That doesn't mean we always do that. Sometimes we find our comfort elsewhere. Sometimes we, we, we turn from Christ, we turn from the cross, and we try to find our comfort in comfort food or or, or some other worldly means of comfort. But we do see some of that here. We see us going time and again to the comfort found in Christ. And then he extends that here, I think, comfort from love. This is a different word, but it still kind of conveys the same or similar meaning. <clears throat> Paul, I think, is augmenting what he says. Is there any evidence that your ultimate source of comfort in the midst of suffering is Christ specifically the love of Christ as found on the cross? Do you, do you have any comfort from the love of Christ that he has demonstrated to you? Then he says, is there any participation in the Spirit? Participation, that word is koinonia or fellowship. Is there any evidence at all that you have been brought into fellowship not only with one another but in into fellowship with the Holy Spirit, by means of the Spirit, by the power of the Spirit. And finally, he says, is there any affection and sympathy? 
This is interesting too because the, the Greek word here translated sympathy can also be translated compassion or mercy. Again, I, I don't think Paul is immediately saying, do you have any affection or sympathy for each other? He's not so much pointing at that. What he's saying, I think, is do you have affection and mercy through Christ? Is that where you find it? Again, if you turn to the Old Testament, we see that when this same Greek word is used in the Septuagint, it is always, almost always speaking of God's compassion and mercy towards his people. And Paul, in his other letters, in Romans 12, 1, Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, I urge you to do these things. 2 Corinthians 1, 3, Praise the God of our Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies. So in other words, when Paul is saying, I want you to take inventory of this church, he's not so much saying, listen, do you guys encourage one another? I mean, hopefully we are doing that. But he's not saying, do you encourage one another? Do you comfort one another? Do you guys fellowship together? Do you have affection for one another? I mean, again, hopefully that's going on. But I think what he's doing is he's, he's putting all the focus on these gifts as they are from God. He's saying, have you received the comfort found only in Christ? Have you experienced the love that you find only through the sacrificial love of Christ? Have you experienced the fellowship brought about through the divine work of the Holy Spirit? Have you experienced divine affection and mercy that comes from God himself? It's another way of how he puts it and how our benediction today says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That's what counts. You can have lots of groups in this world that get along fairly well, that have common interests, that, that get together and have fun, that comfort one another. All of these things can exist elsewhere, but he's saying, are these things from God in your midst? Examine it. And the reason this is so important to note is because these things, these things that you're going to take inventory of, are the grounds or the foundation for what he's about to say. The action that he is about to tell us to take. Paul tells us to take inventory, therefore, of God's grace. And then based on that work of divine grace, the second part here is take action. Beginning at verse 2. Complete my joy. Notice here, he's not, it's not simply, you have to do this. I mean, he could have just left it at that. But he's saying, if, if you do these things, I will, it will complete my joy. I want to see you grow in these areas. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Notice again, all of the ones or the sames, all of this language of unity. He, he urged them already in the passage last week to be unified, one spirit, one mind. And now here he's saying this, uh, four different ways have the, the same way of thinking, have the same love, have the same spirit, have the same purpose or goal. <clears throat> Here's what's interesting and what I found interesting this week is that on the one hand 
Paul is pointing to things that already unite us. He's already listed a bunch of them. He's already said, look, you all have a common identity. You are servants of Christ. You are in Christ at Philippi or in Christ at Meadowcroft. You have the same overseers and deacons. You all share that together. You, you have the same culture that you live in. You live in the same area, the same uh, era of time, in the same city. And he's going through all of these things that are the same. And now he even reiterates, if you see any of these things in your midst, then that means that you all have the same Savior and the same God and the same Holy Spirit and the same love from Christ. You're going to the same place. You've come from the same place. God has drawn you together by His power. All of these things are true of you. And yet, even though all of those things are true and they provide the foundation, there is still more work to be done. If all the work had been done, Paul wouldn't be urging them to do anything. So he's saying, given all these things that you already have, get to work. So he's telling them and telling us there is a unity that we must work towards. Think of marriage. I've married I don't know how many couples up to this point. I don't have the number in my head. It's been a lot. But I've never done premarital counseling or married any couple that had no idea why they were getting married. I've never, I've never talked to a couple and said, why do you want to do this? And have them say, I have no idea why I want to be with this person. I don't think anything of them. I don't feel anything for them. I just think it's the right thing to do. Like that, That's never happened, okay? And if it ever did, I wouldn't marry them. Uh, when on that wedding day, there are countless reasons and good reasons, intangible reasons, why those two ought to be united together in this common cause, join, be one, one in, in, in flesh, and, and have this unity for the rest of their life. There's all kinds of reasons. But I'd like to see a show of hands if you're married. Uh, a show of hands for, for any couple here that since that day that you took your vows has had a perfect marriage in perfect unity. I saw like a hand kind of starting to raise. Oh, there's one in the back. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's crazy, right? I mean, we all know that that doesn't happen. Even though you have all kinds of reasons to get married, there's a lot of hard work ahead. There's going to be a lot of times that, that you will have disunity in the home, despite the good start that you had, despite all the things that you had going for them. Marriage brings together two sinners that, despite all they have in common, have to work hard to develop unity for day-to-day -day living. And it's the same in the church. It's the same in the local church. The local church is full of sinners, that actually, Jeff brought this up last week too, our membership vows. That's the first membership vow. In order to join this church, you have to acknowledge that you're a really horrible sinner. That you have no chance of heaven save for the mercy of God in Christ. If, if somebody sits down for a membership interview with me and says, I'm actually perfect, I'm not a sinner, they can't be a member of this church. They actually can't join the church. So, so you have in this room 
a room full of sinners, self-professed sinners. The church in Philippi was a loving and healthy church, but it was not perfect yet. I know I already brought up Costco a couple of sermons ago, but I'm going to bring it up again because I think it fits. You know, Costco, unlike Unlike a team, like a soccer team or football team or, or even, I don't know, some other, some other organization or group that people join because they have a common interest or because they have a common goal, Costco's not like that. It has membership, but nobody there really has any common interest in, in anyone else there. The, the bar for mutual care and concern is about as low as it can go. It's, it pretty much begins and stops with just kind of get out of my way when I want to grab an item off the shelf. As long as we sort of avoid each other and not step in front of each other and just kind of let everybody grab the stuff that they want and put it in their cart, we're good to go. That's Costco membership. So it doesn't really matter that we, I don't care what anyone at Costco is thinking, I don't care what their background is or who they vote for, like I, I don't care about any of that stuff because I'm not really that invested in them. As long as they don't get in my way, we're fine. The church is not a group filled with people who have a common interest or goal necessarily. We, we don't come together uh, like a soccer team does. The church is a, a collection of saints from different backgrounds with different ideas, different ways of doing things, all of these things brought together by God, by the work of the Spirit. Most of you in this room, I probably wouldn't naturally be drawn to. I know that sounds terrible. But, but really, like we don't all have a lot of things in common. And, and you could probably say that about most everyone else in here, too. If you're just picking best friends, like, we might not pick each other. But we're here. And unlike Costco, we're very invested in each other's lives. We, we don't have a low bar. We have the highest bar of mutual care and concern. We, we're trying to walk with each other through thick and thin, through birth and death and care, and if, if somebody loses their house in a flood, we all pull together and, 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 and pay for a new house or something like that. We, we are fully invested in each other's lives, but we didn't come together because we were already best friends with a totally united in a common goal, like a soccer team. So that's the difficulty. That creates ample ways where you can have disunity in the church. How can we begin then? If we've been brought together by God's grace, we've been made a family whether we like it or not, we haven't been brought together by shared interests, how can we begin to grow in our unity then? Well, Paul tells us in verses 3 and 4. He begins by saying, do nothing from selfish ambition. That is very strongly stated. He's not messing around here. The way he puts a ton of emphasis on, I don't want you to ever do anything from selfish ambition. Now remember, Paul has been dealing with Christians, brothers in the Lord, who 
are full of selfish ambition. He's already talked about it in the letter. He uses the exact same phrase in one verse, chapter 1, verse 17. Go back and look at it. He's talking about he's in prison, and he says, look, I'm, I'm happy that even though I'm in prison, the gospel's being proclaimed. Others are picking up the slack. But he says some of these Christian brothers are doing so out of selfish ambition. Some of these brothers, even though they're preaching the gospel, they're truly Christian and they're teaching the true gospel, they're doing so out of envy and rivalry for Paul. They're doing it and they're glad Paul's in prison because now they can rise and become the cream of the crop, as it were. Paul sees it happening. He's saying, I don't want you to do that here. I see it going on in the church in Rome. Now, if you think about it, if, if people, if Christians, true Christians, can do something like preach the gospel out of selfish ambition, then if you think about it, there's probably nothing that happens in the church uh, that is free from that kind of threat. If the gospel can be preached out of selfish ambition, then pretty much any ministry in the church can be pursued out of selfish ambition. Think about it. I mean, we pastors see it happen all the time. You guys see it happen all the time. Where members of the church, pastors, preachers, we're all prone to this, we can either hold on to a particular ministry with a vice grip, or we can try to take over a particular ministry by our own force. We, we either have been doing it for a long time and want to keep newcomers out because, let's be honest, we started it, we know how it's supposed to be run, and we run it just fine. And we don't need any help from anyone else because they'll just get in the way of what we want to do. Or, you know, members selfishly want to take over a ministry that they perceive as being run horribly. And if they could just get in there, it would be much, much better. It would be in much more capable, and let's be honest, much more godly hands. It's actually <clears throat> that threat to having that kind of uh, selfish ambition in a ministry with a title and all of that is, is one of the reasons why at Meadowcroft we like a lot of organic kind of natural ministry going on. I mean, how much selfish ambition can there be if a member of the church, a couple, invites you over to their house for dinner one night to get to know you? And you show up for dinner and they feed you and you sit around the table and you share about how you came to faith in Christ and you ask how things are going and you pray together at the end of the week. How much selfish ambition? I mean, are you going to get up from their table and leave and think, I could have made a better meal? I'm going to take over this ministry? of them having me over for dinner, it just doesn't even make any sense. The more that we just, out of love and concern for one another, invite each other out to coffee or breakfast or dinners or just to hang out at each other's homes and get to know each other, the less threat there is 
that you're going to be pursuing anything for selfish ambition. I mean, it, it, it at least reduces it. And Paul is saying here, do nothing from conceit. That was a, a big problem in church. In Galatia, he says, if we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited. What does this mean, conceit? Well, it means an exaggerated self-evaluation. An exaggerated self-evaluation. Now, if you have an exaggerated self-evaluation, if you look at yourself and say, I can do this really well or better than somebody else, that can lead you to pursuing something out of selfish ambition. They go together. The more you have an exaggerated view of yourself, the more you're going to pursue things out of selfish ambition. Selfish or conceit here, it basically means that you're thinking, I'm the key. I'm the key to this ministry or this church succeeding or failing. One of the things that I really appreciated, and again, it was, it pushed against my own sense of self-evaluation. It pushed against my own sense of self-importance, and that challenged me. But one of the things that I loved seeing in the end, once God worked on my heart, is just how much you thrived while I was on sabbatical. Because when I came back, I realized I'm expendable. Uh, this church is not my church. This church is Christ's church. And he could take me out tomorrow, and he will take care of you. It's not dependent on me or any one person. I'm not the key to your growth. What is the answer then? If Paul's saying, don't be this way, what's the answer? How are we to be? Well, he says here, but instead, this is a really important word too, instead of that, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. What is humility? Humility is one of those words that when you look it up or you even think to define it, you kind of include in the definition the word itself. Like, what is humility? Well, it just means be humble. But that doesn't really help. You're like, you know, I was trying to think, what, how, how do you define humility? I like how C.S. Lewis defines it. C.S. Lewis says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. And if we think we have a hard time with humility, you can only imagine what these Christians in Philippi thought of this. Because at that time in the world, they lived in the Roman Empire, up till really Christianity, the, the Western world, the, the Greek and the Roman world, it didn't even know, what it had no category for humility. That, that category, that, that idea of humility, it didn't exist. In the Roman world, you, you dealt with people through strength and power or weakness and servility. That's all there was. That's all they knew. At that time in the Roman world, People were, were treated based on their social status, and, and they accepted it. So if you were in the higher class, you accepted that you were just by nature, by birth, better than everyone else. 
that you were higher than everyone else. And if you were born into the lower class, you just accepted that you were worse than everyone else. And that's how life went. That's how things were just. If you were in the lower class, you expected and even thought, I deserve to be treated like garbage. That's the way things were. And if you don't believe me, I'll just quote from Plato and Aristotle. I'm not quoting from Nero. Plato says, nature herself imitates that it is just for the better to have more than the worse, the more powerful than the weaker. Justice consists in the superior ruling over and having more than the inferior. That's what justice was to Plato. Aristotle, for that some should rule and others should be ruled is a thing not only necessary, but expedient. From the hour of their birth, some are marked out for sub subjection and others for rule. That's just the way it was. A book that I would highly recommend, it, it just came out recently, it's called The Air We Breathe by Glenn Scrivener. He basically says, if you hear these quotes and recoil from them, it's because you're living in light of Christianity, of the ripples that Jesus caused that wasn't that way back then. So Paul is saying, look, you, Philippian Christians in your church, you don't live that way. I want every single one of you, I don't care where, where you were born, what class you were born into, I don't care what life was like or what the Roman Empire tells you, in church, you are to count every one of you, everyone else as more significant than yourselves. That's how I want you to live. If humility, you see, is thinking less of, thinking of yourself less, right, if that's humility, thinking of yourself less, then it only makes sense that you would begin to think of others more. It's an outgrowth of humility. Now, one quick side note here, Paul is not uh, suggesting that we have some kind of, of leadership anarchy in the church. Paul is sets up elders and deacons and and it's not he doesn't want there to be when we say well we have to always think of others as superior than ourselves it doesn't mean that i immediately think well hey i'm probably the the last person who should be preaching up here it should be anyone else but me because i'm that's you're all better than i am as a sunday school teacher you don't go in and look at your first grade class and say you should be teaching me because you're superior to me. No, there's still a structure in the church. Paul is not saying that. He is not saying, I can't teach you first graders. He's not saying, Max, you don't preach. He is considering, though, that when I preach, I'm not preaching for my own status and my own standing and for me to be put on a pedestal. I am preaching solely for the growth and the goodness of you. It means that as you teach Sunday school class, you're not doing it for your own status and your own standing. You're doing it for the goodness of the people you're teaching. <clears throat> so it doesn't mean you, don't, you can't vote for your own chili today. I mean, if you think yours is better, vote for it. The point is, no matter what your role is, you should fulfill that role for the sake of others and not for yourself. That's the point. And then he sums it up with verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
The verb Paul uses here means to watch carefully, notice carefully, keep your eye closely on the needs of others. Now here I think it's important because I think what we see here is that Paul is helping us not to misinterpret verse 3 as what we shouldn't believe humility is, right? Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Okay, if you read verse 3 and you come away from that saying, I'm garbage, I'm worthless, that's not the biblical way of thinking. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. If we look closely at how Jesus summed up God's law, what did he say? When Jesus said, here's the law of God, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. In another time, Jesus said, I want you to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. What this has in common is that it is natural and good to take care of yourself. God gave you a body. He gave you a mind. He gave you a life. It's not good to trash it. It's not good to think of yourself as worthless. You were made in the image of God. And God wants you to love yourself in that way. And it's natural for you to want others to treat you well. God does not require that you treat yourself horribly. He doesn't want you to practice self-abasement. I remember being in history class, church history class in seminary, and learning about these ascetic monks who just tortured themselves their whole life. Simon Stylites, he chained himself to a mountain through all the storms and everything. He would walk up the stone steps on his knees, and he lived for something like 37 years on top of a pole, so he couldn't go anywhere. I mean, that, that's ridiculous. God created us. He wants us to look, look after and care for ourselves, but that comes naturally. We're already doing that, most of us. What, what Paul is saying is unnatural. He's saying, I want you, as much as you watch out for and carefully notice what you want, do the exact same for the, for the others in the church. And that's what's so difficult. You know, I have heard many fights going on between my children over the years, but I have never walked in to a fight where they're saying, no, you take it. No, I want you to have the better one. No, it's for you. Like that, that never happens, right? And, and, and I, when I read this, like I realize how much it convicts me. Every time we have, like, if Michelle makes a casserole or an egg casserole or, or some kind of French toast or a pie or whatever, I always want the biggest piece. I always do. I mean, and then I feel guilty. It's like, wait a second, I'm supposed to be loving my family. What? But my immediate thought is, that's the one for me. Here's the thing to sum up. Members of Meadowcroft, what would Meadowcroft look like if we began doing what Paul says? If we actually, every time we got together, if we, when we gather together on Sunday mornings, when we get together in small groups, when we hang out for the fall festival, if we always considered others more significant than ourselves, if we 
always looked out for the interest of others as much as we look out for our own interests. What would the church look like? And the point is that we would look more and more like our Savior. That's exactly what he did. Think about this, and we're going to look at it in great depth next week. But if there was anyone who could have walked this earth and actually commanded that everyone he meets bow down and serve him, it could have been him. He could have walked up to anyone and said, give me all of your cattle, because after all, they're mine. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. You don't. He could have walked up to anyone and said, I demand your life from you now. Think about that. If there's any, anyone who didn't resemble that, it was the one who could have resembled that. And instead, when Jesus came, he said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. May we begin to reflect more and more our Savior. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we're so grateful for what you did. We're so grateful that you sent your Son that he left your side, that when he came, he did not demand that everyone bow and serve him, but that he served and that he went to the cross for us. And we pray, Lord, that you would develop in us a heart that learns and yearns to serve one another. We pray this.